Welcome back to Leaders of Color, a podcast by Leading in Color. I'm your host, Sarisha Iyer, the Executive Director of Leading in Color. On today's episode, we have Elsa Asensio. Elsa Asensio is a Salvadorian Canadian lawyer based in Toronto. Born to refugee parents, Elsa grew up in the low-income areas of Toronto, witnessing her parents work factory jobs to support their two daughters. Her devotion to her parents and community led her to pursue a career in law. Elsa has guided her legal career to niche legal research, such as studying the definition of anti-Black racism in judicial decisions and solving complex legal problems in labor, employment, and pension law. Her passion for community led her to create Demand Inclusion when she was just a law student. The mandate of Demand Inclusion is to create space and a voice for Black, Indigenous, racialized, and other marginalized lawyers, paralegals, and law students within the legal profession. Demand Inclusion has since grown to over 100 members and has a growing passion to move the legal profession forward. Welcome to the podcast, Elsa. Thank you. So tell me a little bit more about the work that you do with Demand Inclusion and how it came about. Demand Inclusion started around May 2019. Um, to give you context, the law society or the legal profession in Canada is regulated by a group of like self-governing body. And so every four years, roughly, lawyers elect something we call benchers. Ventures are similar to the board of directors. Um, they set the policy kind of moving forward for the legal profession, which in turn reflects Canadian society. So issues like access to justice, accessible legal fee, like issues and policies that the law society could help with or just even create a stance. Part of their mandate is the public interest. So the benchers or board of directors have a duty to represent the public interest of Canadian civic society. And so that's just the backdrop. To In May in 2019, there was an election and there was a new slate that was elected called the Stop SOP slate. Um, Stop SOP was essentially stands for the Stop the Statement of Principles. The Statement of Principles is somewhat of a kind of a symbolic document where lawyers could just write their own, you know, their own diversity, own privileges, whatnot. It's really meant to be a reflection piece. But a group of lawyers said it infringed on their uh, rule of law, you know, freedom of expression, that sort of language that essentially wanted to say, no, we don't want the statement of principles. Many of us believe, though, it was more a symptom or a side effect to a larger issue in the profession, which is denying systematic racism, um, especially amongst racialized, marginalized, queer, LGBTQ, disabled lawyers. So I created Demand Inclusion because I didn't think this was the profession that I, A, wanted to be part of in that sense, but B, I also believe in the best, and I know this isn't representative of the whole profession. My view is if we're running for the public interest, it has to reflect Canadian society. So historically, lawyers have done a poor job checking our own historical backgrounds. And that was, for me, one good thing of the Statement of Principles. It was a good way for us to recognize that historically, we have denied Black, Indigenous, racialized lawyers. You know, there's anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, all that jazz. And having a group of lawyers denying that, I felt, was not 
representative of the new generation of lawyers. So I created demand inclusion in response to that in May 2019. Um, it started off with just me, just tweeting, saying, please, you know, come to the meeting, mobilize. And it, it grew. We worked with equity speaking groups like the Roundtable of Diversity of uh, Diverse Associations, um, other equity-seeking groups, in a way to just take a stance and say, you know, we don't agree with your view on denying systematic racism and erasing all the progress we've done to include every type of lawyer. And in, in a way, we're trying to also send a message that the Canadian public needs to be upset about this. The idea is we represent your, we're supposed to represent Canadian society as well. And we solve problems for our clients. And if we are just from one portion of the Canadian population, how can we effectively be those problem solvers that our clients hire us for? So to kind of like give you that long-winded explanation, it, create, it was created in response to what I believe was not really the true representation of the new generation of lawyers and even previous generations. I believe in the best in all of us. And I like to believe that we could stand together in solidarity and just kind of resist any policies that are counter to an inclusive society. That's amazing. Seeking representation, I think, is something that a lot of young leaders is kind of the background goal that we have is to pursue a more equitable future, a more equitable present for ourselves and our communities. But oftentimes that comes with a lot of challenges. What are some of the challenges that you face doing this work in your field? Burnout. <laughs> and number two, understanding that governance and the logistics of movements is as important as the movement itself. When I created demand inclusion, it really was just me putting out calls and slowly folks started coming. And I'm grateful for that. But it wasn't really a formal governing structure. It was very much just like Elsa with a couple folks. And the problem with that is you burn out. And I've learned to trust. I've learned to trust allies and to be quite frank, members who are also passionate about this goal and who have said to me, listen, take care of yourself. You, we, we got you, girl. Like, we, we are here for you. We can pick up the pieces and keep going. And that has been probably the most challenging part, understanding that you have to kind of let go as a leader sometimes and recognize that you cannot split yourself in 100 pieces. You are one person. You could help empower others. You could help support them but you cannot micromanage everything so that was I think the biggest challenge um and I think it became evident around September where the vote for the statement of principles came in like full force at the law society and I was just burnt it was absolutely I just felt like I couldn't do anymore so one of the challenges is I've learned a lesson to reflect take time off, think about what did happen, what didn't happen, and what can you do next. And going back to those folks who believe in you, asking them, hey, do you want to now be part of a governance structure? 
you know, it's not going to be any me, me anymore. I'm not calling the shots. If we're going to do this as a team now, that has been one of the challenges, but also one of the greatest blessings, in my opinion. I'm curious as to what that's like to be able to know that you have these folks um, behind you in solidarity and folks who can pick up the pieces. I know I also struggle with like releasing control a lot of the time, but to have people that you know support you, what's that like? Does that help in any way with the burnout or provide you with sort of an out when it comes to having to stress about everything by yourself? I think it's important for balance. I don't know if it's, I would frame it as an out, but it is definitely kind of keeping in mind as leaders especially racialized leaders, that we have to advocate for ourselves first and before we advocate for our communities. And part of that includes preserving the light that keeps you going. Um, And I think once I kind of thought of it, like I'm not just, you know, finding an out, but rather preserving my light and other people (laughs) preserving their respective lights, thought I thought that has been my guiding principle when I feel like, you know, should I, you know, should I delegate this? And the answer is yes, I probably should. But I also am very aware that I don't want to delegate, delegate everything to one person because then I would be in a position of burning them out. And then that's not what I came here for. So, you know, it is a balance. Sometimes accepting that, okay, I need to just either like take a break, reflect or delegate. But the principle is I have this energy I need to preserve. And that's far worth more than anything in this world. And once I do, then I can move forward with my forward with my own community activism. And what are some of the ways that you deal with that burnout, both when it comes to delegating so that others don't feel the burnout too, um, but also for yourself and within your own community? Setting expectations is number one, very key. So if I'm delegating a task, it will be like, you know, this is what I hope to accomplish. These are what my limitations are. And these are what your limitations are. Letting that kind of set the framework from the beginning of these are kind of what we hope to accomplish, but these are the challenges we may face sets the relationship in a good start because it immediately sets everyone to realistic expectation. And that has been for me, a lot of a driving for a driving force of burnout. Burnout is when you could assume you could do it all. And the reality is we can't. And setting myself realistic goals has been, and within members, you know, could we do this within a short time frame? Probably not, right? That has been, I think, important in terms of dealing with burnout is setting realistic expectations. And also I would like to add Reflection. I, reflection has been very important for me and taking a time off if, if possible. So from September after onwards, I took a break. Like I, if anyone emailed the demand inclusion account, they were probably not going to get a response or if so, it wasn't going to be much. The reason for that is an organization needs to grow. Um, and an organization is also a social entity. Social entities must take back, take a, a step back sometimes and listen. Listen and learn from members and communities and other policy groups. Um, and that's what I did. I think from October, November, December of 2019, I pretty much just spoke with other leaders, um, other racialized leaders, other lawyers, 
racialized lawyers, other allies, and just kind of, just, I was in a listening stage. And now I'm happy we're January. I said, all right, time to, you know, get our, get our things together. But this time change our approach. And I'm very happy that, you know, in a way now I've been able to set realistic expectations and also reflect when needed. Yeah, I definitely think I'm somebody who's like, know your limits and work within them and yeah, try to yeah, most yeah. of what you can with the abilities that you have so that you don't, you don't have to struggle with that sort of thing, or you can prevent it as much as possible. So I definitely resonate with what you're saying. But despite the burnout, there's something that still motivates you and still pushes you to do this work, be it survival, be it necessity, be it passion. Um, and so I'm wondering, what is the most fulfilling thing about the work that you're doing? And what motivates you to keep pushing on and doing it? Well, I think the same way, kind of what's the great thing about this podcast, for example, just hearing the stories of other leaders, the great thing that has been out of this whole or the thing that sometimes keeps me going is knowing that like the same way this podcast has created a space, demand inclusion has also created its own respective space is for me fabulous. And I suppose that is what keeps us all going, especially those of us who are passionate about these issues. When you take a step back and realize, holy moly, <laughs> like we did that. <laughs> that was done. That was cool. And it's a space that people could be in, in a way, a safe space where they could vent, they could cry, they could either be so happy or not. And I think that's what keeps me going, to be very honest with you. Moments where sometimes I want to feel overwhelmed and walk away. There are moments where that happens because you're human. And, you know, partially I'm very proud of the fact that I'm able to say, well, you know, anything that came out of this, I know that there are now a group of lawyers who feel like they have a voice now. You know, racialized lawyers and racialized paralegals because, um, forgot to mention that yes paralegals are also kind of included with this whole law society legal regulation I think that has been one of the things that has been keeping me going same way with like you know this podcast any other collective being proud of that space we've built speaking of being proud of some of the things that you're doing and the spaces that you've built what is a day-to-day -day sort of like for a member of demand inclusion a lot of it is mobilization. A lot of it is, in the beginning, a lot of emails. But we're trying to find a way to stop that. We're trying to recognize that, you know, mobilization isn't just online. And I'm one of the challenges, I, you know, just kind of reminding me of your question you raised earlier. But another challenge is bringing these momentums online, at least Twitter, like Instagram, whatever, to the front line like going to the law society, going, to, you know, supporting groups. And so that has been now a focus in our work. So demand inclusion members pretty much are talking logistics when they attend our meetings, you know, who's going to be there at 6am or 8am to, you know, show up the meeting and show support for this person, right? So a lot of our meetings are now logistics, meaning how can we actually show up? Occasionally we write public statement letters and those are very effective too. But we part of I think one beautiful beautiful thing about demand inclusion is we're actively thinking of ways to show up and mobilize. And I think that's powerful. So for example, the statement of principles debate, 
we just decided to show wear, show up and wear purple. Purple just kind of being the color that was chosen among the collective. But it was a powerful statement to show up in a room of, you know, board of directors slash benchers who denied systematic racism. And the room was surrounded by people with purple from all walks of life, racialized, queer, marginalized, etc. It's taking a stance. And sometimes it is taking a space in these in these um, historically, you know, exclusive spaces it is enough for us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm kind of curious as well as to what sort of tips might you have for young racialized leaders who are trying to do similar work, uh, specifically when it comes to mobilizing a group of people, given that that is so inherent to the core of demand inclusion? Yeah, so I cannot stress this enough. Mentorship, allies, you know, folks who've been in the field a lot longer than you, you want to build those relationships from the get-go. I'm very grateful that we have a couple of ventures notably um, Atricia Lewis over at McCarthy's, who truly, you know, she is her own venture, so she has her own views, but she has been an ally and is supportive for diverse racialized lawyers. And that is something that you want, I suppose, as a racialized leader starting off, finding those allies that when things do go, go wrong. And like, you know, unfortunately, things will go wrong. That is something we also need to accept. No one is going to like that you're challenging the status quo. So in a way, preparing yourself for those attacks. When I first started off, I was very much called, you know, just dismissive names that a lot of racialized women here, um, social justice warrior, stop using emotions, like things <laughs> that are not true, right? Um, like I tell folks all the time, I have a literature, but also mathematical economics training <laughs> along with law school. But even then, I always tell folks, even if let's say I studied nothing before undergrad, I still got the same Juris Doctor degree as you did. So the fact that you're calling me, you know, please use your, you know, stop using emotions or all that you know, nonsense. That, for me, has been hurtful. And at first, it was a lot to take in. But you recognize allyship and mentors is probably going to anchor you in those tough times. And, you know, slowly in the beginning, that is going to be your anchor. And then as you build confidence in your own self, that confidence is going to go through other people, other people like your age, who will say, no, 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 you know, because of this person, I believe in them, I'm going to defend them. And I that for me has been now so immense in my confidence, but you're going to face backlash. You're going to face people who are not going to like you. And I wish someone told me that from the get go. But you know, I now <laughs> could name off the top of my hand a couple of people who don't like me. And uh, I'm okay with that. But I was definitely not okay with that in the beginning, especially as a new lawyer who admittedly, um, I was also trying to find and still finding a way and a voice in the legal, in her legal career and just kind of finding out what she wants to practice. On top of all that, you recognize, wow, you really have nothing to lose with standing your ground, but also having mentors who are able to back you up. And I think there is a difference with young racialized women who just kind of go off and just kind of you know, without the backup in case 
all hell breaks loose. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think that is something how, you know, I do prime my legal training for that. A lot of what I do is tell my clients, you know, if you want to do this, these are the problems that are going to happen or the consequences or liability. And I had to put myself in that situation and be like, okay, if I want to just speak up as a newbie, as a newbie with no one, (laughs) with like no one who has ever heard of me, how can I back myself up? And before I started demand inclusion, I really did foster a network. And when I did go public and forward, those mentors like Atricia Lewis were like, we're ready, you know, (laughs) we're ready for the firing squad. And they have stepped up in situations when I was very vulnerable. And even now demand inclusion members who are like, no, 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 you know, we cannot say this or like, things that I just needed to take a step back because I was just so overwhelmed. And I'm grateful for that. Um, But I guess my lesson for young leaders, racialized leaders, especially is kind of approach it like, what is the consequence if I take x step? And how can I find backup? And that has been the approach I took. And I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot in your story of solidarity coming from very vulnerable places of when there's been hardships, you've found folks um, or had folks in your life who've been able to kind of step in, which is really amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just because I've also been very open and vulnerable. Mm -hmm. That is something that I pride myself. And it's just not something that I even purposely tried. I I think I did it for survival, to be honest, too. I, before demand inclusion, I had my own battles with depression in law school. And I needed to be upfront. I needed to be upfront and say, listen, I'm struggling. I'm not going to pretend anymore that I'm okay. I'm overwhelmed. I'm struggling. And I think that has now been a great trait. Because when I'm overwhelmed with anything, really, I do tell my either my boss, my superior, my friends that, you know, I do think I need to take a step back. And they, for the most part, have responded well to that because for themselves, because they want to move forward and usually opening up is a step forward. I know stepping back is one thing you brought up a lot, but have there been other additional tactics you've used that you think might be helpful for others dealing with the same thing? Yeah, journaling, finding something to kind of balance the, the negative to the positive, the positive to the negative. And I found that journaling for me has been so important. Because I could kind of write down whatever has been bugging me or I'm unsure of and just kind of go back a few days later or a week or whatever and kind of find perspective to that. But also I find it as a technique in mental health mindfulness where I, in a way, kind of write it down and it's my way of saying, okay, I'm just going to park this. I'm not going to park it in my brain though because my brain has a lot of things going on. I'm going to physically park it in my notebook and revisit it a week later. That has been something that a leader once told me. They were active in the Jane Finch community about the issues that have been bucking them, especially for them dealing with issues of like poverty, violence, etc. That's a lot for someone to take in. And they said, you know, they physically park these issues. You know, it's not going anywhere. It's just I'm parking it next to me and I'm just going to move on. And once perspective kicks in, then I'll revisit it. Parking it is kind of your way to also let the system know, whatever system you want to stick it to, 
I'm not gonna lose my mind out of this. I'm not gonna stress about this. I love myself so much. I'm gonna move on. And that is like the ultimate act of self love for me as a leader is just letting go. And it is so hard. I'm not perfect at it. But recognizing that I have that tool now that when I am, I have a thought that I cannot let go. Um, whether in my mobilization, action, legal work or whatever, knowing that I have this tool now to just kind of send that broad message like, wow, I love myself so much that you're not going to take another second out of my energy thinking about this issue. That for me is defiant. And if anything, it even created more self like boosted my self-esteem and confidence as a leader. Yeah, I have such deep appreciation for that because this whole notion of that you've brought up is sort of this pattern of like stopping and pausing and taking a minute. And I'm somebody who's literally never been able to do that. And so to hear that it's been so helpful for you and like is just like very inspirational almost for me. Yeah, I'm happy to like spread that wisdom. You don't need to always be active or on to be a leader. It's okay to be off but still be a leader. That's where I see myself now. I, I tell demand inclusion folks, I've done all the talking now. It's your turn because you have more to say now. You know, your story for me is as important, if not more. I want you to rise up and speak your truth. I've done my part and I'm happy to support it. I think one thing I want to unpack, especially as racialized leaders, is we don't necessarily need to be screaming or on all the time because we also have our own self-worth to preserve yeah I really like that and I really like the idea of it's your turn now which is kind of something that I've tried to build into leading in color as well what are some of the opportunities that demand inclusion has available um, for young racialized folks in, in the law profession to get involved mainly just kind of send us an email demandinclusion at gmail.com we're trying, we have some projects kind of building. And one of the major successes we previously had, and we are looking to continue, is the photo campaign. So there was a campaign of essentially lawyers being featured, lawyers and paralegals essentially saying, you know, I demand inclusion because. And we had powerful submissions like, I demand inclusion because, because of X reason, people have not seen me as a great lawyer. And like, very honest submissions from folks who you didn't think they were going to go that deep, but they did. And those were the powerful ones. So we're thinking of starting that again. But part of the beauty of having a collective and kind of exec, I suppose now, uh, or group of project coordinators is they're also, they also have a voice now in project and ideas and we also include ask the members you know if you have an idea please email us you know this is your space too and we want to support you yeah that's wonderful so thank you so much for joining our podcast today Elsa it was wonderful to have you no thank you before you head off what are some of the places that people can follow demand inclusion definitely our twitter our twitter is still very active and we have a fabulous person running the account. We do a lot of fact checking. We do a lot of, you know, allyship and trying to promote other voices in the di- in the diversity world in law. Um, so our Twitter is at demand inclusion. If someone is really curious to see what's what's up with 
Demand Inclusion, definitely our Twitter at Demand Inclusion, email demandinclusion um, at gmail.com, Instagram, Demand Inclusion. And the, the beautiful thing is it's organic, it's new, it's still growing, and I'm excited to see where it goes. I am too. So thank you again so much for coming on and, and talking with us today. Thank you. For everybody listening, we will be back again with another episode next month.